Thanks. Amen. Church, what a joy to see you this morning. Uh, I thank the worship team as well for your ministry to us this morning. Praise God for that. Uh, I want to second what Michael shared about uh, Jeremy. Uh, brother, going to school, doing what you did, what you guys are trying to do. Man, praise God for your work, brother. Um, uh, it is a wonderful, special thing. We are going to be this morning in the book of Ephesians, beginning in chapter 1, but we'll really land and spend the majority of our time in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Uh, I don't know about you, but... I love a good renovation show. doesn't even have to be Chip and Joanna, uh, the Christian one. It can just be any renovation show. I love Antiques Roadshow. I actually went with my father to Antiques Roadshow in Austin. We took, uh, my father-in-law, we took uh, a lamp and some items to the Antiques Roadshow. I just love old stuff being restored and refavored. I don't know if you like to watch those shows. I like to watch them on television, not just go and... I don't just watch, I don't know about you, I don't just watch, I comment. Do you comment when you watch? The things that they're doing? Maybe the things you think that they should be doing. They start redecorating a room, taking a wall down, and you think, that is ridiculous, I should have my own show. <laughs> this is, they should never have done this. They should have called me to figure, I would never restore that car like that. That is the ugliest color to put on a 57 Chevy. Just have a running commentary of what should be happening, what, what they need to be doing. I want to ask you this morning, do you have a running commentary in your mind about what the church needs? Just like we watch the renovation shows, man, you know what, they just need, if they would just, how do you fill in the blank? Do you have a running commentary in your mind about the church? about this church. You know what? If Michael would just... If the church, if the worship team would, would just... If the staff, if they would... What? What do they need so badly? My life group leader, if, if the deacons, if they would just... What? What do we need so badly? What do we need so badly for the sake of growth and renovation that we would ask God for it? Maybe if you can answer that question, just ask yourself, what are you praying to God for your church? What are you asking God to do in your church? Give you a good indication. In one word, what the church just needs is Christ. More of Jesus Christ. In this way, I'll say, in order to live as Christ, the church needs to know Christ. You don't become a Christian and know Christ, and then you know Christ forever. You, Paul is going to see, we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 3 today, that Paul is praying that the church knows Christ. The church would know Christ. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. 
Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks for your word today. We thank you for the church gathered to hear it. And we pray that as we are seeing in this text, that you would help us to hear it. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Help us have open, soft hearts that we might believe in you, profess you, and live out Christ-likeness in our lives. This church would have Christ. Christ would dwell in their hearts and by faith grow in obedience today. For your glory and for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. I want you to watch and see if you can find, if you can figure out what phrase is repeated most often. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3 through 14. Let's read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." Did you see the phrase, in him or some variation of it? About 12 times, in Christ, in Christ. Everything the Father has done, He's done in Christ. Our sealing in the Spirit, God does in Christ. Over 40 times in Ephesians, a six-chapter book, Paul refers to Christ over 50 times if you count the times he refers to Jesus as Lord. And just hear it again. Let, let it wash over you. All the things that are in Christ. All of the heavenly blessings in Christ. We're chosen in Christ. Predestined for adoption through Christ. In Christ, God gives us all His riches. We are redeemed through the blood of Christ. God's purposes are all in Christ. God unites all everything in Christ. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. The church is the first to hope in Christ. In Christ we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. There is not a moment, past, present, or future, nor is there a space in heaven or on earth where God has a purpose a plan, or a blessing which is not in Christ. Whatever we have from God, we have in Christ. This is a dominating theme in the book of Ephesians. Paul is praying for the church to know Christ. 
the church to know Christ. Do not show up to church thinking you already know everything. We come to learn Christ, to know Christ more. Christians, look with me in your Bibles, chapter 2. Maybe you can just follow along and glance at these as we go through and just see how Christ-centered salvation and the church is. Chapter 2, verse 5. You might know that passage well. We are made alive together with God in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 7. God shows His kindness to us in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10. As Christians, we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ. I mean, think about that term. Chapter 2, verse 13. We were once a divided people, but now we are one in Christ by the blood of Christ. Paul refers to himself, chapter 3, verse 1, as a prisoner of Christ. Why? Because Paul, chapter 3, verse 6, has been preaching the mystery of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 11, God's eternal purpose of uniting all peoples into the church is realized in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 20, all glory is to God forever and ever in the church and in Christ. It's overwhelming. And then Paul makes a shift from the indicative to the imperative. In the Bible, the indicative always precedes the imperative. The teaching about something and doctrine precedes the living it out. That's chapters 1 through 3, the indicative. The second half of Ephesians are the imperative, the instruction, how to live it out. You might think that Paul would teach all the doctrine about Jesus, and then when he starts telling us how to live, he would just give us all of the rules. He'll just start giving us commands about how to be nice to each other and how to treat each other. But it's about Christ through the rest of the book. Chapter 4, verse 7, we are given gifts around the church according to the measure of Christ's gift. Chapter 4, verse 12, discipleship is building up the body of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13, until we reach maturity, which is the fullness of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 20, we should no longer walk in futility of our mind and the hardness of our hearts because that is not the way that you learned Christ. Chapter 4, verse 32, forgive one another because as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us. Chapter 5, verse 5, Paul warns those who persist in sexual sin and idolatry, you do not have a part in the kingdom of Christ and God. Chapter 5, verse 20, when we sing, we sing to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 32, the whole mystery of marriage is Christ and the church, chapter 6, verse 5, bondservants are to obey their masters like they would Christ. Everything we do is Christ. It's Christ because of Christ, for Christ, like Christ. I think it is safe to say we can only think too little of Christ. Has the name of Jesus has Christ been on your mind like it's on Paul's mind? Paul knows the church will not live like Christ unless Christ dwells in our hearts. We won't live like Christ unless Christ 
dwells in our hearts. In order to live like Christ, Christ must dwell in our hearts. But this this knowing Christ, this Christ dwelling in, in our hearts, that's not just like going to a class and learning about Jesus. We learn kind of the rules of Jesus, we learn the ways of Jesus, we learn the principles of Jesus, and then we go out and live them. Paul knows the only way to get from the imperative in the first three chapters, who Jesus is in doctrine, to the imperative to living it out is if Christ actually comes to dwell in your heart. You won't get from chapter 3 into the rest of the instructions if Christ doesn't dwell in your heart. So Paul is praying that God would grant the church a spirit-empowered comprehension of the love of Christ. Pick up in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, our passage for this morning, beginning in verse 14. We're jumping to that middle of the book where Paul is again praying for the church. And he's trying to get them to grasp, to comprehend, to understand everything that he's been saying about Christ so they then can go live as Christ. Read it with me, chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. We need God's power by His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul begins this section by saying he's praying for the church. He bows his knees before the Father. The typical Jewish prayer in a Jewish synagogue would not be to bow your knees. This would be strange for Paul. Paul is going above and beyond, or actually he's going below normal prayer down to his knees to show this needs a lot of humility. We are before a king. We are before a God who alone can do what we are about to ask. So we've got to get on our knees to show you alone can do this. We are asking you to do this. We are helpless to do this. And what does he pray? Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, because of how glorious God is, he might grant you, the church Christians, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you might be asking questions like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So how can Jesus dwell in our hearts? Are we going to do like a, like a surgery? Like, is this like, a, like an elective surgery I sign up for on Monday in the morning? How does Jesus get into our hearts? Like Nicodemus asking, how can I be born again? Go back in my mother's womb? Of course not. This is a spiritual reality. The emphasis is that Christ dwells not just in your minds, but in your hearts. Christ must go beyond just mental exercises and actually get into your inner being, into your heart. The heart is the seat of the life of every person. 
The heart is the human operating system. Paul knows that we must know everything he taught about Christ in our hearts so that we can live out Christ. We must know chapters 1 through 3 in our hearts so we can live out Christ, chapters 4 through 6. Otherwise, you're stuck back in chapters 1 through 3. You never actually pick it up if it doesn't get in your heart. See how the first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul wants the church to know Christ in their hearts and then see how often he sees Christian life coming out of the heart. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. He's praying that God would enlighten the eyes of your heart to see Christ in your heart. Now flip forward to chapter 4 on the other side of the indicative imperative. Look on the instructions in chapter 4. But he continues to talk about the heart. Chapter 4, look at verses 18 and 19. Ephesians 4, 18 and 19. Don't be like the Gentiles. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their what? Their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, and practice every kind of impurity. What's the problem? What, what leads to callousness, sensuality, greed, and practice every kind of impurity? Hardness of heart. A hard, a hard heart is not soft towards others, and it's greedy to self. It's only concerned about self. Another way that you can tell kind of a hard heart is kind of how Timothy Keller told us we can always tell who a Pharisee is. A Pharisee just likes to run around and tell people, that's not funny. Nothing's ever okay. Look at chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. When we sing, we sing from the heart. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling excuse me, chapter 5, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It's got to come from the heart. Singing is supposed to come from our heart. Look how he talks about bondservants and masters. Chapter 6, verse 5, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, as you would Christ in your heart, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Paul's point is that if we live our lives from the heart, we need Christ dwelling in our hearts. We do everything from our hearts. What we do, we do from our hearts. You might remember Jesus' teaching, every word that comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. So we need Christ in our hearts. But maybe you're like me, and you've had the experience where you feel like your heart can get stubborn. And it doesn't want to let things in. It doesn't want to let Christ in, doesn't want to let you your spouse in, doesn't want to let your children in, doesn't want to let your neighbor in, doesn't want to let the co-worker in, doesn't want to let generosity in, doesn't want to let teaching and correction in. 
Getting things into your heart is not always easy. Getting your heart to forgive someone is not always easy. Getting your heart to tell the truth instead of lying is not always easy. Getting your heart to be generous and love your wife like Christ loved the church is not always easy. So see what Paul is praying for. Go back to chapter 3, verse 16. See what Paul is praying for. That according to the riches of God's glory, God may grant you, God may allow it, may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That that hard, stubborn place to let anything in, through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is romantic language of Paul saying, have faith in Christ in your heart. We need God's help to get Christ to dwell in our hearts so that Christ has His full effect on all aspects of our lives. Jesus is not just invited to sit on the front porch for a visit and drink some lemonade in the shade. Jesus is to come and dwell in our hearts. We're not supposed to have coffee with Jesus and devotion in the morning and then get in the car and go on to work on our own. Jesus to dwell in our hearts, which go everywhere we go. We don't just invite Jesus into our hearts because we are nice to Him. There is an idea floating around Western evangelicalism. It has been haunting and disrupting real Christianity in the West for some time. And it is the idea that you, in your kindness... And you, in your benevolence, invite Jesus into your heart. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Oh, that God would grant that the Holy Spirit would bust the door down so that Jesus might come in. We don't invite Jesus into our hearts. We're hostile in our sin. Because of our hostility in mind and our pride and our own stubbornness and our own depravity, we're propping up doors behind, propping up chairs behind the front door and and double locking. We in our sin make stands at the door. We don't want Christ to dwell in our hearts on our own. Alexa, turn on the security system. Don't let Jesus in. I love my sin way too much. We, in our pride and our sin, try to keep Jesus out. And Christians can get just as sideways. We can get into a place where we are so far in our love and our affection from Jesus Christ. What in the world could possibly get Jesus back in our hearts when we, our own hearts, are opposed to Him by our sin? God, strengthening us, by the Holy Spirit 
in your inner being, so then Christ can dwell in your hearts. Christ can't even dwell in your heart by your own strength. And you probably know that without having put words to it before. I can't get Christ in there. I can't just make my heart more loving. I can't just make myself forgive today. I can't make myself tithe more generous than I am. I just can't make it. God, would you strengthen our hearts that Christ may dwell in our hearts by your Spirit. So then, then when Christ is dwelling and taking up residence and living and setting up home in our hearts, then our hearts will be filled with Christ and Christ will come out of our hearts. Christ will come into our marriages. Christ will go into the bond servant slave master relationship. Christ will go into your father-son relationships because Christ dwells in your heart, so it comes out. Only when God grants it by the Spirit can Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. And you just hear the wonderful Trinitarian mystery, the ministry of the Trinity in this passage. God grants it by the power of the Holy Spirit, that Christ dwells in our hearts. Isn't it wonderful? What have you prayed for strength to do lately? What have you prayed for strength to do lately? I know there's a lot of moms. God, just give me strength to discipline this child in a way that is legal according to the state of Alabama. Give me the strength. God, just give me the strength to sit behind this car at this light, at this speed, in righteousness. God, give me the strength to, to what? God, by the Spirit, strengthen me that Christ would dwell in my heart. And then Christ will come out. He can't come out if he doesn't dwell there. You're looking at your marriage and you're thinking, my marriage is not very Christ-like. I'm not a very Christ-like husband. Christ needs to dwell in your heart. You don't need to just try to do more Christ-like things. Be a better version of Christ. Pray Christ would dwell in my heart. Then you can love your life, your wife like Christ loves the church. You see the connection? If Christ dwells in your hearts, then you can do the instruction on the second half of the book. A few weeks ago, our associate pastor moved to our church, and they had a big truck full of things, and they came later than expected, so the next day, a bunch of people came over, and by God's pure sheer grace, I did not have to help this brother move in. <laughs> had some heavy things in their garage, and I came over, I couldn't stayed for long, came over, visited, said hi, and then some other men came behind me and helped move all their things into the house. I, and they couldn't lift it. They couldn't pick it up on their own. It's a strength issue. Like that, it's an ability issue. On our own, we don't have the strength. We don't have the inner ability to lift Christ into our hearts. Our spirits can't lift Christ past our minds Put them and move him into our hearts. Only by the Holy Spirit can God 
get Christ into our inner being so that it dwells, so that he dwells all the way down there. How could we on our own possibly have the strength to comprehend all that Christ is on a heart level? It can only happen through the Spirit. It can only happen through faith. Look what Paul says in the next chapter, chapter or next verse, verse three, chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. He's talking about the same thing, but different, kind of a different picture now. That you would have the strength. I'm asking God to give you the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. See, the, the, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. You can't comprehend the love of Christ with knowledge. You can't do it. it. It doesn't compute there. Don't believe that, that God's love is kind of like our love and that knowing God's love and knowing Christ's love is the same as knowing our average love in the world. It's beyond us. Paul chose his words carefully that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Do you see the play on words? That you would know something that surpasses knowing things. The idea is parallel to the phrase of inner being dwelling in our hearts. Here's how Calvin says it. It's not enough if the knowledge of Christ dwell on the tongue or flutter in the brain. This is a knowing that goes, that goes beyond knowing. Listen, I've been married. Michael, you said it. I do know this date. I've been married for 15 years. I don't just know that my wife loves me. I know that my wife loves me. And Paul says, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I wonder if for you the love of Christ is a true thing, but it just is stuck in, stuck in knowledge, stuck in things that you can know. Something that surpasses knowledge can only be understood in the heart. In Christ, God's love is so beyond man's love that it surpasses knowledge. In order to comprehend it, in order to grasp it and understand it, we actually need God's help. It's a spiritually understood truth by faith in the heart. Calvin says this also, If the faculties of man could reach Christ's love, then the prayer of Paul that God would bestow it would have been unnecessary. Why pray and ask God if He would help us to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge if we could just read a book and understand it? Paul's, the virtue that Paul's praying for this, Paul the Apostle knows, I can't even give it to you in a letter called Ephesus that is the Bible. You need God to get it in your heart. You need God to comprehend the magnitude, the weight, and the glory of Jesus' love. You ever have a math problem that you need a calculator for? You ever have a math problem just too big you need to go get on the computer? My kids are starting to do uh, math. My oldest, like Michael said, is 13. They're starting to get in math, and I'm like, yeah, I'm done. I can't help with homework anymore. Like, we're, like one plus one, six divided by three. Like, I am so good. But you start getting equations and algebra. Like, I have no idea. I can barely read English. Like, I don't know how to help you with your math. You start asking questions like, what's 110 million divided by 4,791? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. In Austin, we have so many techies that when I said this illustration a while back, there are some guys that, that 
just started doing like this. I'm like, just stop. That's the illustration. It's just an illustration. Paul's wanting us to comprehend in verse 18. Look what he says in verse 18. I'm praying that you would know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. How can you comprehend the magnitude, the space, the width of Jesus' love? How, how do you comprehend things like a million miles? Can we comprehend this? I don't know if you've heard about this. I'm, I'm fascinated by watching it. NASA launched a space shuttle on Christmas Day 2021 named the James Webb Telescope. Right now, unbeknownst to many of us, perhaps, although some of you may be following it too, I don't know, right now orbiting the Earth a million miles away from the Earth, the James Webb Telescope said to be able to detect infrared versions of light that may even show us where the, uh, the Big Bang happened, supposedly. A million miles, we're, we're receiving pictures already from a telescope a million miles away. I mean, I mean you thought Wi-Fi at Starbucks was bad. The telescope has to be kept to an extremely cold temperature, negative 370 degrees, so that it can seek to observe faint infrared light that is 13 billion years old without any interference from other sources of heat, so that it can then send 458 gigabytes of data 1 million miles back to the Earth every day for the next 20 years. That's your tax dollars. I mean, it's just the, the, the measurements and the scope and the distance. It's, it's just beyond, like, measuring. And Paul has in his mind when he prays the strength that we would have to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's just so big. It's so wonderful. We need to go beyond knowing to knowing. At the 24 Legionnaire Conference, I was given this mug by a church, church member of mine, and it's got R.C. Sproul on it. And it says R.C. Sproul on the top. It's got R.C. Sproul with his Sprolish scowl. And on the bottom of the mug, it says, What's wrong with you people? It's a wonderful meme. It's a wonderful moment. It comes from a moment at a Legionnaire Conference in 2014. On a panel, Sproul and other pastors were asked, Since God is so slow to anger and patient, then why, when men, man first sinned, was God's wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? You ever think that question yourself? Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was His wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? R.C. Sproul responds, didn't we just have that question a second ago? That God's punishment for Adam was so severe? This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences a curse applied for some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Sproul goes on to say, I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. 
The question, why is it infinitely more severe if we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? Why isn't it infinitely more severe? You get in there, that's the love of Christ. You can't even begin to comprehend the love of Christ when we look at our sin and God's holiness only as far as we measure mankind's sin and we measure God's holiness and we see the love of Jesus Christ coming to pay for our sin and appease and be the propitiation as we sang for God's holiness. Can we begin to comprehend how high, wide, and deep is God's love? beyond knowing some facts. Nothing keeps us from dying today and forever entering everlasting judgment. Nothing keeps us from God's wrath. We are children of wrath, right, students, like we saw this week? Nothing except for God's love, nothing but the love of Jesus Christ keeps us from hell forever. And now Paul is praying, I just pray that God would strengthen your hearts to know it. To know it. With a knowledge that surpasses knowledge. As one pastor said, the love of Christ doesn't bypass knowledge. Paul gives it to us in indicatives. He gives it to us in knowledge. He gives it to us in statements of faith. But knowing it requires going beyond knowledge. So that it is beheld. So that it is treasured in your heart because only God can grant it. I remember a few years ago watching a debate actually took place in Birmingham. I watched the filming of it later between John Lennox and Richard Dawkins. John Lennox, a famed mathematician from Oxford University. Richard Dawkins wrote The God Delusion, the famed and infamous atheist, scientist, philosopher. The beginning of the debate, the moderator comes out and he says, I'm sorry, we brought you here under, all, under false pretenses today. Uh, Richard Dawkins has become a Christian. The atheist has become a Christian, so there's no debate today. <laughs> Everyone laughs, the crowd laughs. <laughs> Richard Dawkins chuckles, John Link, everyone just kind of chuckles. That is so silly to think that Richard Dawkins could become a Christian. He didn't become a Christian. And he isn't a Christian. It was a joke. I love a joke as much as the next guy. But it's not very funny. Because God can, by the strength of the resurrection, God can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if he wants, grant it to get Christ into Richard Dawkins' heart. That's what he did for me. If you're a Christian, that's what he's done for you. John Joseph is a lead pastor at Chevrolet Baptist Church just outside of Washington, D.C. He gave his testimony in 2012 at an event called Together for the Gospel. Just listen to his testimony and see the power of God to put Christ in the heart of men. He says, My name is John Joseph. From an early age, I was totally immersed in sin. As I grew older, The nature and degree of my sin became more grievous. As I transitioned to college and early adulthood, the roots of sin that had taken hold in the past began to flourish and take hold of my life. 
Giving myself completely to sin, I eventually became an alcoholic, a drug user, and a cocaine dealer. I dishonored my parents. I was a liar. I used everyone and everything for personal gain, and I was full of lust, greed, and hate. Full of lust, greed, and hate. But God in His mercy removed me from my surroundings. In late 2008, while at Blockbuster, I came across Bill Mayer's mockumentary, Religious. As I began to watch, I was annoyed at Mayer's obvious bias and portrayal of religion. So I got on Google and I searched for a debate on Christianity. What I found was a leading apologist who, over the course of the next year, would completely destroy everything I believed in. And as I continued to search for more teaching on the web, God in His mercy would send me to Desiring God Ministries. On January 5th, 2010, I sat down to listen to a message on John 3.16. And prior to the beginning of the sermon, Dr. Piper prayed that somebody would be brought from the darkness into the light. Being faithful and true, our Father answered. Not five minutes into the message as I sat devastated by the reality of my sin and the impending judgment that awaited, I knew that I deserved hell. I knew that I was going to hell. I was, over, however, then overwhelmed by the knowledge. What kind of knowledge do you think he means? By the knowledge that my sins had been forgiven by the blood of Christ. His grace and mercy did not stop at salvation as he continued in giving ways beyond what I could imagine. Had you seen me three years ago, you would have likely thought that I was unreachable. Seriously, he says. There is no reason for me to be standing here outside of God's power. But I stand here by grace as a testament to the power of the gospel. There is not a soul in the world that is too lost or too dead or too far out of God's reach. Do not underestimate the power of the gospel. Maybe you're a Christian. You've already professed Christ with your mouth. You're baptized and affirmed by this church or some other. And you even as a Christian are wondering if God can break up your heart. Can God break into my hard heart? Can God break into the hearts of the people in my local church? Yes. And Paul's praying for it. Paul's praying for it. Two things, church, really quickly. One, pray for God to get Christ into our hearts by faith. Pray for it. Follow Paul's example and pray. Humbly ask God that he would help by his power to get Christ to dwell in our hearts. Pray for, you pray for it, church. Pray for it this evening when you go to bed. Pray for it tomorrow when you wake up. Lastly, make your discipleship about Christ. Keep putting Christ in front of you. Paul just mentioned Christ over 50 times in six chapters. How many times is Christ in your Bible study? How many times is Christ mentioned in your life group? Christ gets into our hearts when we see Him, when we hear Him, and by prayer, God helps us to have faith. We need to know Christ that we might live Christ. I don't know what you think the church needs. I don't know what you think the church just, if we need Christ to dwell in our hearts that we might live Christ. Let's pray.
Father, if we are honest, we know how stubborn our hearts can get. Mine, ours, whether we're not a Christian or we are a Christian today, Father, it's only by your power that we can actually begin to have Christ dwell in our hearts. And then by your power and by your grace, live out Christ's likeness. Sing about Christ from our hearts. Have marriages that are like Christ from our hearts. Go to work and serve Christ there from our hearts. Honor our parents and disciple our boys and girls like Christ because Christ is in our hearts. Would you grant it, Father, in our inner being? I'll give you just a moment to pray in response to God's word on your own, in your heart, and then we'll sing together.